and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, and today at Beauty, we're talking about one of the most infamous and famous publications in Australian newspaper history. The story behind it in many ways is coming up on this podcast. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And it's all thanks, of course, to our good friends at CSCG. Now, we all have a financial situation, uh, and they're the people you can talk to about whatever your financial situation finds you in. And if you want to talk taxation, you want to talk accounting, you want to talk borrowing, you want to talk expansion, you want to talk business in general, they're the people to talk to. You can give them a call on 03 9974 Superannuation is another area where we all kind of grapple with a bit. If you are, then there are experts in the field at CSCG. Uh, check out their website, cscg.com.au, or as I said, give them a call. It's a Melbourne number. Double nine seven four eight triple three. They're looking forward to taking your call, and very proud to, to have them as part of this podcast. Authorised, which today goes into a part of the Australian newspaper industry uh, that we all know about, not often talked about. But uh, a gentleman has done a book about uh, his time at the Truth newspaper. He's called the book The Awful Truth. <laughs> it's uh, a recount, I guess, of uh, Adrian Thames' time. 13 years he worked for The Truth newspaper. Prior to that, though, he was on Fleet Street. A Fleet Street journalist uh, finishes up in Australia working for The Truth newspaper. How does that happen? Well, we'll find that out. And we'll also talk to another man, a very well-known sporting identity, Rodney Malcolm Hogg, the test cricketer, who for a time was a contributor to The Truth newspaper, writing their cricket stories. And uh, the way he finished at The Truth newspaper might surprise you. But let's get into the uh, the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, and after 13 years working at The Truth, Adrian Tame sat down and wrote about what it was all about to uh, like to be there in the Rupert Murdoch days and much more. Let's talk to him about it now about how it all sort of uh, started out. It was a series of coincidences in a a way, Kevin. What happened, I was uh, moving to Australia because my wife's people were over here and I wrote to the Herald and the Sun, which was two different papers in the 70s, and I wrote to the Age and I wrote to the Australian and I wrote to Truth. And the other four all wrote back saying, we can't possibly give you a job on the other side of the world. Come and see us when you get here. But Truth wrote back and said, come and see our man in London. So I duly travelled down to London from Nottingham where I was living and um, our man in London arrived about an hour late for the interview, very obviously having just enjoyed a a liquid lunch and spent the next hour regaling me with stories about this this newspaper, which I had no idea what sort of a paper it was. And he didn't ask me a a single question throughout the interview, which I thought was odd. He just told me stories about the characters who worked for the paper. Anyway, at the end of the interview, he said, well, I'm going to recommend you for a B grade. And I said, what's a B grade? And it was substantially more than I'd learned earned in North America or even in Fleet Street. So I I thought, well, I'll give that a go. And it wasn't (laughs) until I arrived in Australia and saw a copy of the paper, because my background up to that date had been fairly uniformly conservative in terms of the newspapers I worked for. And I was I was very shocked, but no more shocked than when I was finally ushered into the then office, uh, the office of the then editor, Paul Edwards. And there he was, naked to the waist, wearing a pig mask, arm wrestling <laughs> a, a, a VFL footballer across a table. So that was my introduction to truth. Um, but the, I guess the thing about it was, Kevin, that within a couple of weeks, I'd just fallen in love with the lunatic energy and anarchy of the place. Yeah. And, um, and I, there was something about it 
and I suspect it had a bit to do with the siege mentality that we were all under because the rest of the media obviously thought we were fringe dwellers and um, had no right to call ourselves journalists. So we did we did very definitely have this siege mentality and it drew us close together and it was, without any doubt, the happiest place I've ever worked in my life. It's amazing, really, isn't it? I mean, it was a scurrilous, scandalous uh, newspaper by any any stretch of anyone's imagination. Is where it said. How, how internally, how did how did you all feel about the paper? Were you was it something you were proud of when it hit the stands each week? Well, yes and no. Um, I guess. I mean, we used to call our readers pig brains. Um, <laughs> Time magazine. Time magazine had a piece where they described truth as a newspaper designed exclusively for those who move their lips when they read, which, <laughs> which, which I thought was a, a pretty fine uh, description. But, uh, I mean, on the other side of that coin, Kevin, I, I do remember during the period that I was news editor and it was my job to, to decide what stories went into the paper, at the end of the week I'd go into a news agent and it was quite a common occurrence to see somebody next to me in the news agent ask for a copy of Truth, pull out the racing guide out of the centre and then hurl the rest of the paper back <laughs> across the counter and say, I don't want this filth. And, and there was a week's work <laughs> being trampled onto the floor. So, And, and every now and then we did, we did actually cover serious stories and run campaigns. So it wasn't all sleaze and... and um, page three girls there was another side to it so in answer to your question mixed emotions yeah. we 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 were under no illusions that we were working for an erudite civilized rag we <laughs> we knew what we were working for but i guess we uh, we attempted to get as much enjoyment out of it as possible the the one the, the people that probably did shiver in their boots with the truth uh, i guess in some ways were the were the politicians and and the and the high profile people you went after but in on a serious note the the con men and the frauds and all those people that you exposed through the truth, which made great headlines and all that, that really was a concerted effort to, to, to get the people who were doing wrong by uh, the people of Australia, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the tradition of the paper right from the 1800s on, when it was first founded, was to prick the, the bubble of pomposity and, and expose the corruption among the, among the upper orders. And I, and you, you mentioned politicians. I had a, a very revealing um, experience with Peter Nixon, who was then uh, foreign minister in um, Malcolm Fraser's cabinet. And I got onto a story that he had a holiday home down in Marlow on the coast um, in South Gippsland. And this holiday home had had electricity, water, even a road, all, all put in right to the door. And... Um, I went down there and checked with all the utility people and found out that all of this had happened. And we had this policy at Truth. When you were exposing somebody, you never phoned them days before the story ran because that would give them the opportunity to take out a writ, <laughs> stopping publication. So you always phoned them very shortly before publication. And I phoned Nixon's office in Canberra the night before we published the story on the front page. And I got onto one of his PR flunkies who said, nah, the minister won't want to talk to you about his holiday home. He's got far more important things on his mind. So I thought, great, that's fabulous. No comment and yeah. went home. 
By the time I got home, my wife came to the door and she said, there's been a Mr. Nixon on the telephone for you. He sounds very agitated. He's phoned about three times. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pleasant to, uh, to occasionally um, catch the odd politician with his trousers around his ankles, figuratively speaking. Yeah, well, and that happened on a number of occasions. Oh, it did indeed, and I, I suppose the most famous was poor old Billy Snedden. Yes, and the fa- and the famous headline we ran: "So Billy died on the job." But, yes, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, politicians were were definitely a target, and I suppose anybody with a with a name and a high profile. The uh, the history of the paper is fascinating. I mean, you mentioned it goes it goes back to the uh, to the eighteen nineties, I think it is, uh, and and I guess the the tone for the the paper was was set. The the first editor died of syphilis. Yeah, indeed, the mudgy camel. He died in the <laughs> lunatic asylum, um, and the and the, the um, his successors weren't weren't a big improvement. Um, I mean, it it wasn't really until until Murdoch took it over, which would have been in the. Um, I'm not absolutely sure. I think, I think it was the late 60s that it gained any semblance of sort of mainstream respectability. And then that was only a smattering of respectability. As, as you've said, it was a, it was still very much a scurrilous scandal digging rag, but it, um, its circulation was the incredible thing. Yeah. I mean, at its at its peak, it sold four hundred and fifty thousand copies a week. But the amazing thing about those four hundred and fifty thousand, you never ever met anybody who bought it. It was always, <laughs> oh look, I found I found my copy in the back seat of a cab, or I occasionally see my um, copy, but nobody bought the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Funny about that. Were there no bounds? Did uh, I mean you mentioned you were news editor? Or were there no bounds? Was there was there a, a, like everyone's fair game? Um, yeah, there were bounds. I mean, we if we if we found that somebody who we were attempting to expose had a genuine reason for behaving the way they had, and, and I mean, we I suppose from that point of view, in a way, we set ourselves up as moral arbiters, and that that really is not fair, but we did occasionally decide no, no, we're not going to do this bloke over. He doesn't deserve it. He's had a rough trot, so we'll leave him alone. So yeah, there were bounds, but um, it was always tempting if the name was big enough to go ahead anyway. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Murdoch, and, 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 and he bought the paper, and it was p- part of his sort of blossoming media empire, but it sort of, in the end, it sort of turned on, on him a bit, didn't it? And he, he had to get rid of it because it, it wasn't suiting his purposes of what he wanted to achieve. Absolutely. I mean, when he when he took over Truth at the same time, I think that he took over the Daily Mirror in Sydney. Um, previous to that, all he owned was the Adelaide Advertiser, which he'd um, inherited from his father. Yeah. So he was very much in the fledgling stages of, of his incredible career. And it's, it's not inaccurate to say that he cut his teeth on... Um, on the kind of newspapers that he uh, that he opened or, or purchased around the world, he cut his teeth on truth, and he uh, he was an, not a regular but an occasional visitor to the office, and um, it was always revealing to to work alongside him because he had an incredible knowledge of the um, of the newspaper world, and we all respected that. But he, at the same time, that ruthless streak that enabled him to um, take over the media world was very, very present. I mean, one classic example of that was 
when the Herald uh, went on strike and Murdoch decided to turn truth into a daily for the duration of the strike. And it only lasted for, I think, four or five days. We brought out the paper as a daily. And it's, as I'm sure you're aware, it's very, very difficult to turn a bi-weekly into a daily overnight. And we worked so hard and such long hours. We, we averaged about 22 hours a day. And at the end of this week, Murdoch stood on a desk in, uh, in the middle of the newsroom. And I swear there was a tear in his eye. And he said, I'll never forget any of you for what you've done this week. It's been the most amazing effort. Six months later, seven of the people who we'd never forget were made redundant. So, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Isn't that just typical? <laughs> well, it, it was typical. And it was, it was, I, I remember at the time I phoned his right hand man, his then right hand man in Sydney, Brian Hogman, and said, Listen, Rupert said he'd never forget us. And he sacked seven of us what's going on and Hogman made it very clear if the boss has decided it's right that's you, you have to cop it sweet yeah um and and that was the um, that was the way things worked in news limited yeah 13 years is a long time to spend in a, in a newspaper you know by today's standards uh well i mean it was obviously there were the highs and the lows yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, thirteen years is a long time to spend in any job nowadays, yeah. isn't it? I mean, what do they call it? The churn. You know, you you, yep. you rarely stay in a job for more than a couple of years. But um, I guess uh, one of the reasons I stayed as long as I did was that after um, seven years, Murdoch sold the paper to Mark Day and Owen Thompson. Yep. And Tomo was such an amazing character that I was I was so enchanted by the opportunity to work with closely with him that that kept me going for another six years. But by the, by the end of the, and you're dead right, 13 years is a long, long time. But by the end of that period, I really had had enough of the place. And um, I was I was quite glad to put it behind me. But I still have dreams about once a month, I dream I'm back there. <laughs> and I think, you know, this is 20, 30 years later. And I think, my God, what am I, whatever has brought me back here? But, yeah. So it, it has a legacy. Yeah. Adrian, is, do you look back on any particular time or any particular story as something that you're proud of? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I mean, uncovering Petrov's whereabouts was a, was a pretty big scoop. A massive, yeah. Also, also the um, collapse of the Tasman Bridge in Hobart was a uh, that I mean that was I was very very lucky in that that I managed to get an exclusive interview with the captain of the of the of the ship that smashed into the bridge and and caused the disaster um, and there was a, a media pack of probably fifty or sixty journalists working in Hobart and I was the only one who managed to get an interview with him and that was purely and simply because the photographer that I was with and I had gone to the casino the previous night and had lost every cent of the $400 expenses that we'd been <laughs> wired. And we were in deep trouble. And I went at five o'clock in the morning, I went to the hospital where I knew the captain um, was was at that time on a ward in, in a bed. And because the previous day, the media pack had tried to get access to him, but had been turned away. And I figured at five o'clock in the morning, I might just be able to sneak in. But I was stopped as I walked down the corridor by this nurse. And I spilled my guts to her, Kevin. I said, look, I'm, I'm going to get the sack. I've lost all of my expenses at the casino. If I can get an interview with him, I might, I might have a chance of survival. And she said, well, I'm not interested in that. It'll cost me my job if I let you in there. Yeah. So in, I, I said, well, 
um, how about you convey some questions to him for me? And finally, she agreed and got me to write them down on a piece of paper and shoveled me off into this room and said, wait here. And I waited for 20 minutes. I didn't. I thought she'd forgotten all about me. And she finally came back with my piece of paper with all of his answers scribbled across it. So that was um, plainly and simply because I, because I lost all the money the previous, previous night. Conversely, is there is there a story that you're still uncomfortable about being associated with from your time at the truth? Yeah, and absolutely, absolutely, Kevin. And the worst of the worst was Jimmy Cairns, who was Deputy Prime Minister, you may remember that the News Limited papers have been running stories about his relationship with Junie Morosi. Oh, yeah. Um, in, insinuating that it was more than a platonic um, or a professional working relationship. After a couple of these stories ran, it became clear that Cairns and Morosi were going to sue News Limited and, and quite possibly be awarded considerable damages. So the word went round the organisation, we need to get proof that they are in a um, uh, physical rather than a platonic relationship. Unfortunately, at that time, a, a businessman who'd been in, I think it was Hong Kong, phoned the Truth Newsroom and said that he'd stayed in the same hotel as Cairns and Morosi and was pretty sure that they shared the same room. So we sent Jack Ayling, a senior reporter over there, and he came back with a statutory declaration from a maid who'd served them breakfast in bed and also a photocopy of the hotel register, which had Dr. and Mrs. Cairns as, as hotel guests. And we established that Gwen Cairns at that stage was in the Northern Territory, so it couldn't possibly have been there. Been there. So I was assigned to go around to Cairns' house in Hawthorne and beard him in his den, as it were, and put all this on him, which I did. And it was a it was a, a very shameful interview. He ushered me into his study and um, pulled a couple of chairs together, and we sat facing each other with our knees almost touching. And just as I was about to show him the documents, a, a large white cat jumped on my knee, and I'm nervously stroking this cat. And Ken said, "Let me see what you've got." And I, I was almost speechless. I was, I really, I didn't enjoy doing this at all. And I handed over the stat deck and the photostat of the hotel register, and he looked at them, and then he stood up and he grabbed me by the shoulders, and he was, uh, he was beside himself and he said get out of my house and he frog marched me out of the house now all that was bad enough but I thought well at least we've got a good story out of it but not a bit of it the news limited people in Sydney and their lawyers said no we're not going to run the story we're going to use it as leverage to stop the mm. legal action and so all of that embarrassment and humiliation really was to no purpose other than to protect news limited we didn't get a story out of it so yep I I remain to this day. I've maintained my shame over that yeah, one. Gee whiz. There's a story in the book about Rupert Murdoch and, a, and a, uh, a vomiting explosion in the back of a cab. Can you tell me what that's about? I've seen uh, a couple of uh, articles have, uh, have mentioned that one. Yep, indeed. That was a night that um, Murdoch and Owen Thompson, who, as I say, later purchased truth from him, uh, Murdoch, Owen Thompson, and a, and a chap called Red Harrison, who was a legendary Sydney journalist, went out on the tear one night. And at the end of the night, the three of them were in a cab, uh, dropping them off at their various homes. And Owen was in the middle, and he dropped off to sleep, as did the other two. He woke up suddenly realizing that he was just about to be very, very sick. 
And he looked to his right, and there was Red Harrison, and he looked to his left, and there was the boss, and then by then it was too late, and he threw up all over Rupert. And Rupert half woke and looked down at his front of himself and apologized and then went straight back to sleep. And the following morning, Owen goes into, into work, and he goes into Red Harrison's office, and he says to Red, I think I'm in trouble. I've got a terrible feeling. I threw up all over the boss last night. And Harrison said, yeah, indeed you did. I think the least you could do, you better go in and before he gets to you, you better go in and apologize. At that moment, Murdoch stormed into the room looking very perky given the um, extent of the hangovers that both Harrison and Thompson were suffering. And he said, great night last night, boys. Fabulous night. He said, the only thing was, he said, I've, I've ruined my best suit. I've, I've vomited all down the front of it. And I can't remember quite when I did that. <laughs> and the other thing he said, I had the Parmigiana. And I swear there were no carrots in that. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yes, it all comes out. It all comes out in the wash the same way in the end, no matter how you, how you kind of do it, does it? <laughs> it does indeed, yep. Uh, given given today's uh, you know what what's happening in the world uh, today in terms of communication, uh, where where would the truth be in a world? Because uh, I mean the truth was gone in the mid nineties. So where would where would the truth sit in the world of Twitter these days and Twitter and well, Facebook and all that look, social media stuff? It, very interesting question, Kevin. And I think the first thing to say about that is that none of the um, amazing characters that worked for the paper as journalists in those days would be vaguely interested in a job in the media nowadays because, as you well know, most journalists sit at their desks on the phone. There's very little encounter with the, with the public or with yeah. their readership. And, the, and journalism has, has changed for the worse in so many ways that I don't know that truth would have much of, a, much of a place. I mean, even before its demise, as you say, in the 90s, things like women's magazines, shock jocks on radio, um, even some of the more respectable papers were, were going into the same territory that truth had had exclusively to itself for decades. So... Um, its days were numbered by then, and I guess I, I can't imagine how it would operate today because its shock tactics wouldn't really shock anybody. I mean, fake news has uh, has demonstrated that you can say what you like. Yeah. It doesn't have to have any semblance of, of truth about it. So I don't think we would have um, – I certainly don't think we would have prospered by, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and the holier-than-thou press that used to uh, you know, look its nose, look down its nose on the truth and, you know, be, oh, that scurrilous rag from uh, West Melbourne have actually turned into it. Well, yeah, and, and and it was very much a question of that. That's why I said at the start of our conversation that we had this seed mentality because we very rarely cross swords with the mainstream media because we covered different kinds of stories. But when we did on, on murders or that sort of thing, quite often we scooped the, the, the papers like the Herald and the Sun and the Age. And I think one of the reasons for that was that, I mean, it was a difficult paper to work for. When you phone up and say, my name's Adrian Tame from the Age newspaper, people are anxious to talk to you more often than not. Yeah. When you phone up and say, my name's Adrian Tame from Truth, they either slam the phone down, <laughs> laugh at you, or give you a serve. So it, <laughs> being, being accustomed to that sort of, sort of difficulty really made you think on your feet. So the standard of journalism, despite what the mainstream media thought of us, was pretty high. 
When when you left the truth in uh, uh, at the end of your thirteen years, did it did that? Uh, and I, I used I mean it's the nicest possible way. Did it hang around you a lot? Did the stench of it still stick with you for a while? Yes, it did. I mean, I, I maintained friendships with um, a lot of the people that I worked alongside, and I maintain those friendships to this day. They're very very important friendships to me. But yeah, the, the stench did hang around, as yeah. you say, for quite a while. It's a it's a wonderful uh, a page in our history and a, and a, and a fabulous. I mean, it's it's so Melbourne too in 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 so many ways. The awful truth: my adventures with Australia's most notorious tabloid, uh, the first and probably the best of them, if if there's such a thing. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, been a delight to catch up. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Kevin. I've really enjoyed it. Adrian Tame, uh, the book is The Awful Truth, and uh, it is a very good read. It's not awful in any way except uh, in the title, so my thanks to Adrian for his time. Let's uh, take a different tack, though, now. A man who was a contributor for the uh, Truth newspaper for a number of years was Rodney Malcolm Hogg, best known, of course, as the Australian fast bowler who took that 41 wickets in that memorable Ashes series, and uh, that certainly made Rodney's name, and uh, when you've got a name that's as marketable as Rodney had at that stage, all sorts of media opportunities open up for you, including one, at the Truth newspaper. So let's see how that all came about for Rodney Malcolm Hogg. I think Rod Marsh was doing it, and they, um, and then I just took over from I think Marshy actually, and then um, oh, it was really uh, it was pretty easy work because you just talked to Tony Nebo and, and a couple other blokes. Um, so you just talked to them on the phone. It was a ripper twice a week. Went for a few years actually, I reckon. Yeah. Oh no, I, I I remember. I remember you being. I, I thought it actually probably went for four or five years. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be right. Was there a kind of a predisposition from the people who you talked to that you had to try and be controversial, or had to try and make a, a headline out of it, or was because because it was that sort they of newspaper? Just, they did what they wanted. Yeah. So they did it. They just uh, the, the writers um, turned it into uh, what they wanted. The way that your time at the at the Truth newspaper finished is quite interesting. I faced this Shane Warne in a district game, and I thought, "Jeez, what's going on here?" Just St Kilda played Waverley down at Waverley, and uh, I faced three balls, and I thought, "What's happened there? What's going on?" And obviously, Peter Sleek was a number one spirit at the time, and I'd played with Peter Sleek for years, and I, I thought Peter was a very, very, very good cricketer. But his leg spin bowling never worried me, but he was Australia's number one spinner at the time, so. So I thought, oh, this kid's going to play for Australia for sure. Well, you know, going to really be very, very good. Yep. And obviously, Truth newspaper likes a bit of exaggeration. So I just picked up a calculator and multiplied 100 by 5 and came up 100 test matches, 5 wickets a test match, 500 test wickets. So I thought, let's go with it. After that game, sorry, I faced him and then he got picked for Victoria. And uh, when he got picked for Victoria, that's when I... Um, well, let's do something a bit bit bigger to the truth. And then they ran with it. Mike Murphy was the editor. He rang me up and he said, oh, mate, you're right. You're right and shit. You're right and rubbish. And I'm sorry, but we're, we're going to have to put you off. So I got sacked. In perspective, I guess Lance Gibbs probably would have still been the number one world record holder then with, what, 300 and, uh, 307 or 314 or whatever it was. So you've said that Warney would get 500. And what if he finish up getting 700, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> I reckon you'd have to go down in history as the first bloke in the history of the Truth newspaper that actually got uh, that got sacked for exaggerating something that was <laughs> that wasn't wasn't exaggerated. You're way under uh, as opposed to way over. Well, 
Well, when he said, um, when he said, you're set, you, oh, you're right. I thought, well, that's what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what this paper's built on? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Who would have thought you would have been sacked for exagger for under exaggerating uh, the achievements that finished up being what Shane Warne did in the world of cricket? My thanks to uh, Rodney Malcolm Hogg for his time, and we'll talk to Rodney at some stage in this podcast uh, about the couple of books he's written. He's written a couple of beauties, including his latest one, which was called Speed Thrills: a uh, look into the uh, the minds and the stories of uh, the great fast bowlers of the eras, in, uh, you know, right back to John Snow and all the way up to the current day fast bowlers like Patrick Cummins. So we'll. Uh, We'll get to Rodney and talk to him about that uh, in a future episode of the Authorised Podcast. My thanks to Adrian Tame. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Good for a laugh. Good for a little look at the history of uh, one of the uh, most notorious, I guess, tabloids uh, ever in this country. Certainly, I reckon, the original one of the uh, of the tabloid newspapers. A lot of them have copied it over recent years, haven't they? So thanks to Adrian. And uh, that book is widely available. Uh, if you'd like to get a copy of it, uh, you most certainly can. It's called The Awful Truth. Uh, so thanks to Adrian, thanks to Rodney. Hope to uh, catch you next time on the next Authorised Podcast with thanks to our very good friends at CSCG. If you uh, have a financial situation you would like to talk to them about, whether it's good or bad, they can help you out. They're good people. 3 that's their telephone number. And, of course, you can check out their website, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care of yourself. Listener.